2: I said,
1: everything's gonna
2: be alright. I said, everything's gonna be alright. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's IAQ Radio for Friday, September 11th, 2015. 14 years since that terrible day. Thoughts and prayers go out to those who were affected, those that died, and those who were part of their families and friends. This week is episode number 382. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio is our engineer, John. You gotta have faith. And joining me from the old Studio C back in McKee's Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnik. Good afternoon. Hello, everybody. Good day, Cliff. Okay, this week's guests are going to be Luke Gard, and Kevin Kennedy, both with Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, and Eric Shapiro. These guys are are true uh, scholars and gentlemen. I love working with them. We've been together for quite a few years now. Luke and Kevin and I have worked together for years. They come and help me teach courses at the uh, summer break and now the Healthy Building Summit, and Eric Shapiro has been Uh, Part of that group as well over the last three or four years, and we've been working together on some committees for longer than that. I'm I'm really happy to have all three on. We're going to talk from research to practice. Before we get started, though, uh, we want to make sure our listeners know about that upcoming IAQ Radio, IAQ Training, Healthy Building Summit will be at Seven Springs, Pennsylvania. The conference portion will be September 30th, to October 2nd. Look forward to seeing a lot of you there. Let's start by thanking our marquee sponsors.
3: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com.
2: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfacts.com.
3: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at iaq.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services.
2: Okay, and check out that new iaqradio.com website. We've got the new search tool. You can put in a topic. You can put in the name of a guest. You can put in a show number, and it'll take you right there. Also, we have all of Cliff's blogs posted there as well, and uh, i really encourage people to check out the blogs. They are excellent. All right. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question.
3: Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. You can either email, either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Sorry to report there was no oh. correct answer to last trivia question. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, September 11, 2015, has been sponsored by Trisca, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Trisca is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Now for today's IQ Radio Trivia Question. Named the English physicist and mathematician who was the first to realize that scientific discovery needed both induction and deduction. A revolution in the scientific method that took science into the modern age and refined the scientific method process into the one that we use today. Back to you, Joe.
2: Excellent, Cliff. And I hope you get over that cold there you're fighting. Next I want to do a quick intro. I mentioned our guest names and and how, you know, we've been working together for years, but let me get something a little more formal. First is Luke Gard. Luke has a biology degree from the University of Kansas, and he's been working in the environmental related sciences since about 1994. He worked at several environmental laboratories in the Kansas City area, and then he began working for the center for for environmental health at children's mercy hospital in 2005 he did a lot of work early on with families and assessed homes and then he became interested in the school facilities and how to make them safe and healthier for students and staff this led to the creation of the safe healthy schools program with the center for environmental health and he's got to go inspect a couple million square feet of facility next week. He's also an instructor for the National Center for Healthy Housing, and uh, we're looking forward to talking to Luke. He also helps IAQA courses and has been a member of their membership committee and the IAQA Healthy Homes Committee, which I believe is being reinstated. Kevin Kennedy is the director for the Center of Environmental Health at Children's Mercy Hospitals and Clinics in Kansas City. He's been involved in environmental health science, and industrial hygiene chemistry consulting for over 25 years he has a master's degree in public health from the kansas university medical center and his bachelor's degree is in natural history from another university of kansas another jayhawk we also have with us today eric shapiro eric is the owner operator of indoor air quality services out of miami and new jersey he's got over 20 years of experience. In consulting and contracting, indoor environmental consulting, contracting, and training. He taught for an IAQA approved training facility in New Jersey and also helps with IAQ Training Institute courses. Welcome, gentlemen. Great to have you on board. All right, let's get everybody unmuted. And we're going to jump right into this. Let's start with Luke, because I'm so happy we were able to get you on, Luke. I know you're swamped, just got off the phone call, and and you just got off the road, and you're going back out next week to do a bunch of uh, investigations. When we're talking about research, where do you look, Luke, when, when you're looking for research that helps you determine how to do your indoor environmental quality assessments, investigations, remediation, where do you look? Where's the best information?
1: Um, boy, there's a lot of great sources out there. I would definitely include uh, like the IAQA, IICRC, um, EPA, HUD, um, and even some listservs um, offer some good insight into kind of up-and-coming or uh, cutting-edge research as well.
2: All right. Let's, let's turn that over to Kevin. Kevin, where do you go for the research information you're looking for? Well, certainly those those
4: same places, and over time, when you go to uh, some of the major conferences and and hear presentations, uh, you get the opportunity to hear uh, some of the researchers themselves talk about their latest research, and some of it is, is isn't even published yet. They're showing the latest results, and you hear from them uh, when that'll be published. And I, I'll tell you that uh, just from our experience of even talking to uh, people who hire consultants and are concerned about liability or whatever, one of the first things that legal teams look for is what societies do you belong to, what uh, certifications do you have, what memberships do you have, because those things indicate you're trying to keep up on the latest science. And then if you are able to do that, then looking for the, the specific journals in these days, uh, it's amazing how accessible a lot of the science and research is on Online, on the Internet, uh, most of us can get access to PubMed, uh, which is a lot of the health-based research, a lot of the environmental-based research. Uh, several organizations put out journals with excellent research, like the AIHA and, and ASHRAE Journal. And uh, So looking for those various uh, websites, they can have tremendous resources. And then uh, you've got to take the time to read some of the articles. It really, Some of it's pretty fascinating
2: stuff. Great turn that over to eric eric the guys mentioned a bunch of areas now you're you know you do more contracting than any of us here i'm wondering where do you look
0: uh i would say joe my most valuable uh source over the years has been uh a place kevin mentioned and that is industry conferences where we can uh speak directly to uh a host of people either present uh uh, presenters uh and others uh that at ten. So I think that's my most valuable resource. And then as Luke mentioned, our, our industry organizations, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of information out there. Uh, and Kevin said, you've got to take the time to read it. Of course, that's a difficulty too. There's so much information out there is where do you have the time uh, to read it? So I do rely a bit on our industry organization to distill that. Uh, so when we do have the time to read, we're, we're hopefully it's filtered, and we're we're reading, uh, uh, you know, some, some good information. But but by by far, I enjoy attending conferences uh, and listening to speakers uh, and seeing, uh, you know, uh, what upcoming research or uh, has been done is being done, and uh, that's my that's my favorite source. That's a great point because uh, the other thing about conferences is they distill the
4: information for you, which is real helpful too.
2: Absolutely. And next year, I want to mention one that um, I think Luke or Kevin mentioned, the Indoor Air Quality Association. They are now a part of ASHRAE, which is a great resource for information on our uh, issues within our industry. And next year, I believe it's in January, the ASHRAE AHR Expo and the IAQA convention will be combined, so that's a good location for next year. I also want to mention, because I I didn't hear it specifically mentioned, the ISIAC folks, the um, uh, ISIAQ, the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate, is another good area. Cliff, let me turn it over to you for a minute. I want to ask you a question, and then if you want to go ahead and ask the next question, that's fine. Where do you look for information? Because you come at things from a little different perspective than the three guests we have on. Well,
3: I, I think that my primary interest is really rest, restoration side. So, uh, I look at uh, you know the RIA magazine. Uh, you know, I get I, I subscribe to a number of different. Um, I guess they're web-based, uh, news broadcasters. They're, 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 free. Uh, or I this one. I see C does one, a couple of other organizations do them as well. And I, I tend to read down through that list and, and, uh, click on the ones that, uh, interest me most. Um, I still like believe it or not, I still like the other you know, library, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, you can just get uh, access to old magazines. Uh, you know, it's not like American* things like that. And you know, when you do internet research, you can't always get the the exact magazine. But norm- you know, Pittsburgh's very fortunate. We have uh, fabulous Carnegie libraries here, particularly the one in Oakland. It's you know, on the University of Pittsburgh campus. It's just outstanding, and they just have uh, tremendous archives. Of information
2: there, so I'm glad I asked you, Cliff, because I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Clean Facts, um, one of our sponsors. Clean Facts, they they have a couple of um, like digest type um, email type newsletters that go out, and uh, that, I think that would be another resource.
3: So. I, I, I think there's there's one other thing too. A lot of times I look at things that that, that are. Being patented and stuff like that, so I'll, you know I'm interested in antimicrobial technology, and a lot of times um, you can uh, learn about patents that you know that have been filed and and, and so on and so forth, and just uh, you just through internet search, and I found that real helpful as well.
4: Well, and a lot of the scientific research uh, is what's been done to support that patent, so right. you
1: find a connection between the two, oftentimes. For sure, absolutely.
2: Uh, I'd like to mention, and then Joe,
1: I just wanted to say real quick. Don't forget that upcoming Building Professional Summit at Seven Springs.
2: There you yeah, go. the Healthy Building Summit coming up. We'll be uh, having some great speakers there. Actually, uh, several good keynote speakers. Uh, Doctor Siegel's coming in. We've got, uh, you know, we've got Ralph Moon coming in. We we've, we've got Eva King. Well, I mean, there's a, a long list. But I want to mention one more resource, and that's the Science Daily. Um, I get. The Science Daily has a little digest every morning. It's one of the first things I check. A lot of the articles I put in the weekly show announcement come from that Science Daily. So they they now gather together all the different science-related news announcements that somebody did research on this or they found this or whatever. And they give you a real quick summary of that and then a link to where you can get more information so uh, I think that's another great resource all right let's move on a little bit um, I wanted to talk a little bit about well let me do let me throw another question out before I get into our um, research that we did does research inform practice or does practice inform research or both anybody both. Both. Yeah. It's a two-way street.
1: I would agree.
4: I think it has to be.
1: Um,
4: I... I, I think that uh, in a lot of different fields, uh, the, the practitioners figure out uh, some very important best practices, and then when they, uh, through conferences or whatever, networks uh, report to each other, Uh, that information can get to the researchers to uh, study the effectiveness or something or study the innovation that the practitioners have figured out through practice. And then once that's studied and formalized and there might even be publications to support it, then others who might have considered it as a practice would have evidence To substantiate that it is an effective practice and one that they should implement in their work and we certainly have worked hard to do a a combination
2: the reason I bring that up is is twofold one it's something that Cliff mentioned a few weeks back I don't recall if it was on the show or somewhere else when we were talking about our upcoming conference Um, and, you know, I was asking, you know, it's it's called research to practice. And I think he was bringing out the point that oftentimes practice drives the research and that practice is, in, in essence, research to some degree. So over the past two years, we have done uh, every year. Uh, you guys know, maybe some listeners don't know, every year the IAQ Training Institute for the last seven or eight years now has had what we call our summer break event, where we do all the different courses that we do during the same week. And recently, we've added a small conference that uh, goes along with that. So it's this year, the Healthy Building Summit. We'll do indoor environmentalist, mold remediation, water damage restoration courses. But we also have the three-day IEQ mold and disaster restoration conference. Two years back, we did something similar at Hidden Valley. And during that particular conference we started our own research project and what I'd like to do is kind of I'll give the overview of it and then I want to get Luke and Eric to jump in because you guys actually did the the work all right the Luke and Eric were teaching the indoor environmentalist course so we had the opportunity to set up different hotel rooms in different configurations the first year we set up one room that was just negatively pressurized so we sealed off the area just like you would on a normal asbestos abatement type project we negatively pressurized the room then we had a second identical hotel room that we set up just in the scrubbing mode so we used an air filtration device and uh, just recirculated the air in that room and then we had a third room that was set up with both negative pressure and scrubbing because over the years i you know i came from the asbestos world where everything was negative pressure doing more in the disaster restoration side of things and mold remediation i've seen these other types of uh, variations on containment and i always wondered how they affect the different parameters that uh, we measure as indoor environmental consultants so we looked at, um, most importantly, I think, was particle counts. But we also had some spore trap information in um, at least the second year. We also did temperature, relative humidity, water activity, etc. cetera. So we used the students to gather the information. And under Luke and Eric's supervision, they gathered the information. We put this information together. And then uh, we looked at before, during, and after uh, after being, you know, overnight, how different parameters were affected by those different types of containment. In the second year, we added a fourth room, which was a control room. So I wanted to kind of set the stage a little bit, and then I want to turn it over to Luke for a moment because you were involved with the, um, you know, determining what type of sampling we were going to do and the particle counts and all. I want you maybe to describe a little bit for the listeners. How we did that and then I want to turn it over to Eric and Luke both to give us some idea of uh, what we learned from it. Luke?
1: Okay um, well basically what we did as Joe pointed out is we basically took some of the students that were in um, the indoor environmentalist course and we basically spent an afternoon working up in these various hotel rooms and this was after um, the remediation students in that class had actually set the rooms up under containment. Um, so what we did, and again, this would be a certain, certainly a confounding factor that you would discuss, but those initial measurements were taken with anywhere from 8 to 12 people in the room because we were trying to illustrate and demonstrate to those students the process of sampling, what you should consider, et cetera. So when we talk about some of the results perhaps, um, those first or initial samplings may be a little bit skewed towards the high end just because of the level of activity and the number of occupants in these given hotel rooms. Um, But basically what we tried to do, as Joe pointed out, we set up rooms under different conditions and with the primary focus on the particulates, just because we were wondering that overall impact from beginning to end after something has been, the work has been done and then how long or what kind of changes we see over time. And I think we were generally, and I'll have Eric jump in here and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we were generally looking about a 24-hour time period. That's about correct. So, what we did is, again, using the students and having them walk through this process with us, we basically collected, um, in terms of particles, we collected ambient room particles, um, and then on some of the devices, we'd actually measure the inlet and the exhaust um, particulates as well, just to verify that we're at or near zero in terms of those exhaust partic- partic- particulates. I apologize. Um, after that, we were also looking at some other things um, using some Grey Wolf Sensing Solution equipment, temperature, relative humidity, CO2, CO, um, TVOCs in that particular room. Um, I believe that first year, Joe, you also had some equipment that you had gotten some um, water activity sensors that we've in those hotel rooms, Yes, and that was maybe perhaps more interesting than even some of the particulate data as it turned out. Um, and we can discuss that a little bit later. But we did measure water activity on one exterior wall and then one interior wall just to determine if there was a difference and then if that actually changed over time. And then we also used um, just kind of an IR thermometer Um, psychrometer to determine dew points on the four walls in those rooms um, at that time and again at initial sampling um, basically after it had run for a while and then at the end of that 24-hour period and I think we generally took samples about five minutes after it run and then about 45 to 60 minutes Um, and then that next day or approximately 24 hours after that. Um, there were a couple confounding factors, just like I mentioned, the occupa- the number of occupants in that, those rooms, um, the level of activity associated with those students moving around, um, and then you can throw in the air conditioning units, how often they were basically calling for air. Um, and then we did have uh, a breach in containment in one of those rooms. Uh, just I have a feeling due to the amount of negative pressure that we applied to that containment. So that uh, one, um, yeah. I think that's kind of it in a nutshell. And I'll I'll let Eric jump in from there.
2: Let me let me clarify yeah, before so, uh, you do, Eric. We, I think uh, yeah, Eric, going give me back one second, Luke Luke Eric. Um, we did have there. Were, we had when Luke says occupants, these are occupants. Doing the sampling, not people staying in the rooms. We, the rooms were not occupied at the time, and I thought we shut the mechanical system down. Uh, I know the second year we did, but I, and we we sealed it up. But I can't remember what we did the first year. So, um, Eric, I don't believe got... we sealed
3: those off the first year. Okay, that is correct. Second, second year we did
2: All right, Eric, go ahead. All right. So uh, I I think
0: at the time, uh, uh, it was really. We were really interested in, in two major areas, and that was uh, particulates and, uh, uh, and the water activity. And one reason water activity is because we had a cool new tool to use that uh, <laughs> uh, we, were, we were field testing. So uh, that was good. And uh, uh, really, you know, really interesting data between the room with the air scrubber and operation only uh, compared to the room that was strictly under negative air. And then the third room that had both the air scrubber and uh, was under negative air. So we did get, uh, you know, a bit different data for each one. Uh, And uh, one thing we we all agreed was uh, the water activity that we found in the room under negative air, both rooms under negative air, was a bit higher than the room with the air scrubber, uh, especially at the exterior wall. Uh, so, again, uh, I don't want to assume, but under negative pressure, uh, we're, we're bringing in uh, moist, humid air. This was in the summertime, and uh, we saw an effect there. Uh, and it seemed to also track on our particulate counts that the room that only operated in an air scrubber mode tended, after a 24-hour period, to have a lower particulate count than did the other rooms that had uh, some negative air on them. Uh, so uh, we, we surmised this might happen, but you don't know until you measure it. So there were only three rooms. Uh, this was in 2013, but uh, they did track in that manner. And uh, what uh, we wanted to do then was expand this a little bit to what we did last year in 2014, uh, and I think we used a, a, a bit more control on some of our parameters, so uh, so that that was interesting. Room under negative air, we had a, a slightly higher water activity where we measured it, and also our airborne particulate counts were uh, a bit higher than in the room that strictly had an air scrubber running.
2: And if I if I'm not mistaken, the the, the water activity level on the exterior wall increased um, in the room with just negative pressure and did not increase much, if anything, in the room where we just scrubbed the air.
1: I actually, actually it went down in the room where we scrubbed the air. It was correct. It went from 0.67 to 0.61.
0: That is correct. All other rooms, when there was negative air, it elevated, it rose, uh, where we only had it in air scrubber mode. It actually went down, uh, by, uh you
2: know five tenths of a point, you know one of the things that one of the reasons I wanted to do this was that I had heard that just putting a scrubber in a room didn't do anything to the particle levels, especially with very small particles, because of the capture zone of the air filtration device and I've heard this argument before, and then I've heard the other side of the argument where well. If you've got the exhaust side coming out, stirring up air, overall, the particle levels will go down as, and they will become diluted. And I want to clarify for listeners, we didn't move the air filtration device, the scrubber, we didn't move it to, you know, let the exhaust hit different areas within the room. I believe we left them stationary for the 24 hours. Is that accurate, guys? Yes. And even though we did leave them stationary, there was a pretty significant reduction. And I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. We just started to really pull this all together for this year's event. Um, but it went down pretty significantly. And I think in all categories, we looked at particle levels from 0.2, from 0.3 up to, I think, 10 um, micrometers. So Uh, They were pretty, you know, it was a pretty significant reduction in the scrubbing room. And then I believe the second room was more, you know, it did reduce it, the one that had the scrubber and the negative air. And with the negative air machine, the particle levels, I thought, pretty much stayed the same. Is that accurate, guys, or was there a slight variation on that? Well,
0: if if you take our 2014 data, which uh, 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 Luke and I were able to uh, have a little more maybe a little more control or, or a little more focus on it. Just to give you an idea, after 24 hours, the room that had both the negative air machine and the air scrubber in operation had total particle counts, half of that of the room with only negative air. So there was a reduction that we got at half. And then the room... That had only the air scrubber in operation was about 10% lower, uh, almost 10% lower than the room that had both negative air and an air scrubber. So a big, big reduction uh, going from negative air only
1: to negative air with an air scrubber or air scrubber only.
2: Luke, anything you want to add?
1: No, I agree with that. Um and I think um when we start talking about water activity, I, I do want to just support what Eric said about um we were in Pennsylvania and um basically September and uh I I believe the first year was seven springs, so you can imagine how much moisture was in that environment. And then um although we did not move the devices around in the room as Joe pointed out there was certainly enough current um, and just general disturbance because of the amount of air that we were moving in that room that I think that there was a moderate level of disturbance in that, although we didn't move those units around to direct that exhaust stream to disturb things more.
4: And, and let me, uh, Joe, can I ask a quick question? Go ahead. Just to confirm. So, uh, guys, on the lo- smaller particle counts, did you find the same level of reduction of particles in the two scenarios? Even for the small particles, I mean, you know, because that's one thing Joe said, there's this thinking that smaller particles have a much higher residence time and scrubbers aren't as effective, but it, it sounded like you felt like it actually, or the data showed that it had a significant impact even on small particles.
2: Uh,
0: yes, yes, I'm, I'm looking at it right now on a one micron uh, in the room with the negative air compared to the room with the negative air and air scrubber in it. Uh, it went down threefold. Wow. Uh, that's for uh, one micron, yeah. and then uh, uh, on the room with just the air scrubber, it appears that that went down uh, a third more. So yes, it, it seems to it seems to trend across the board. Uh, we do have a lot of data here, crunch, but as far as following the columns down, yes, it seems to uh, seems to trend across the board uh, uh, at all levels. And I would agree with that. And all Joe, right. I would you
4: know, go ahead. Say, we're just talking about the concept of research to practice, practice to research. Uh, after participating in that and looking at the data with you all, uh, I just found that really uh, insightful and fascinating, especially the water activity piece, because uh, it helped me to realize and understand how dynamic – the moisture in walls is it's not just sitting there you know building up or going down slowly uh, subtle changes in pressures can uh, start to drive the, the moisture dynamics really fast and that's what was amazing is these guys had data showing a pretty good drop in water activity especially on the exterior wall where as Luke said you've got you know in September there's a lot of moisture outside a lot of available moisture and that negative pressure, um, a lot of that residual moisture had built up in the wall, and just applying negative pressure rapidly made those changes, uh, conditions change.
2: Yeah, it was an interesting point. I, I thought it was all, you know, things that I th- I expected some of this, not the water activity particularly, but the, the particle levels, but it was nice to get some confirmation that um, these different, Types of containment, you know, there's – we now have a little more information to work with with respect to what happens in different types of containment with all these different parameters. The other thing we added the second year, and then when I'm done with this, we've got to take a short break for our halftime. We added spore trap air sampling. And I believe we just did before and after, Eric, but you, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. Well, we did during as well. we'll we get did get that we, after the break. Okay, let's do that. Yeah, let's and Joe, try.
1: we did actually do that in two, three, 2013 as well, the sport trap sampling as well.
2: Okay, okay. And yeah, then we'll, what we'll do is we'll take a short break, we'll thank our sponsors, and we'll talk about how the different types of containments affected the sport trap results when we come back.
3: The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, we use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
2: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends com.
3: And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com.
2: CleanFacts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
3: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products. For
2: services. You know, you take a couple weeks off, you get a little rusty, John. And um, before we go back to the interview, we do have a musical clip for our guests. Was different, Cliff. Um, research. <laughs> I don't know how well you guys could hear that. We'll fix it in editing. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the sport trap results. Um, Eric, Luke, one of you, give me a give me a, Luke. I think or Eric, I think you had more of a chance to look this over. A little I uh, yeah,
0: I I I have the data in front of me from last year, and uh, uh, again, tracking the uh, just or trending just like the particulates did. The room that we had under negative air only, the pre-sport track data, total counts I'm going to deal with now, <clears throat> excuse me, was 624. The total counts after, and that's after a 24-hour period, was 923. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much tracked with the uh, control room we had had, the room that had both negative air and an air scrubber in operation had a pre-count of 520 counts per cubic meter of air and the post data was total counts of 377. Uh, And then when we go to the room with just the air scrubber we drop to a post count of 286 and this Tracks just what the particle counter tracked. Uh, where where we have an air scrubber only, we have the fewest uh, 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 counts per cubic meter of air from the spore tracks uh, by almost threefold from the room with the negative air machine.
2: Have, have you had a chance to look at just the Aspergillus penicillium like spores?
0: Uh, I I don't have that data right in front of me. I took total counts to get an overall picture okay. uh, of what was going on. Uh, and I don't want to assume anything without doing it. But as across most of the particle sizes, uh, we saw a reduction. I would I I I, I, I want to ex- extrapolate out of this and, and think that along different uh, uh, sizes of fungal spores that the same the same would occur.
2: Well what we will do is we've got to put this all together in a paper and that'll be after this year's event and and what I'd like to ask all three of you what would we do different this year if we if we decide to do the same scenario where we have you know we have the opportunity we've got four hotel rooms we by the way we did use all Hepa 500 the Drye's Hepa 500s and we did particle count before we started, we made sure that they were working properly and that they were, you know, doing a, a good job in reducing about 99%. Um, what would we do different this year if you guys had, you know, if, if I could get the funding together or whatever and uh, we can, you know, expand on this a little bit? How would you change it?
0: I'll let you go first, Eric. Uh, you know what? I don't know if there would be that much to change. I would like to replicate to see if the data trends just like it did in 2014. Uh, uh, so I'd like to see some consistency there. Uh, I don't have the data in front of me for uh, uh, ambient, uh, you know, like relative humidity uh, and and uh, and temperature, uh, but, you know, I want to look at that as well. And uh, so I- I'm really interested to see if this was just, Something that happened uh, once or twice, or will we see a consistency again uh, uh, this year? So, so I'm 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 looking at that, and uh, I don't know if I change it. I I just look to see if we can confirm that every time we set up these scenarios, our data is going to trend in the same way. Then okay. I feel a little more confident,
1: Luke. I would agree with what Eric said, and I think the only thing that I would add to that is last year we did not have those water activity monitors where we did have better control of the rooms Mm -hmm. um, and the setup and et cetera. So for me, I would like to add um, that water activity process um, or those instruments again. But again, I agree with Eric that just replicating that process to make sure that these results are consistent over a period of several years... um, barring any unforeseen circumstances or confounding factors, um, but I would agree with Eric that I think essentially just confirming that this that this is what we're seeing across the board, I think, would be valuable.
2: And, guys, I want to throw out a, a, a thought. Could I add a
4: couple? Go ahead, one, Kevin, please. On a, one addition we could add that might be interesting is we have an ultrafine particle counter, and it might be interesting to see what the impact is on those ultrafine particles, if there is, with the scrubber. The other thing that would be interesting to me would be dehumidification and its impact on water activity. If you were to run a dehumidifier in one of these rooms, it's a small enough setting. It would be interesting to see if does that have impact or change the water activity under the different conditions that were described. Obviously, you'd expect you would start to dry the air out, but I wonder how quickly that would impact the actual water activity in the the wall substrates that I, I don't, I, people assume that when you drop the humidity, you create pressure to evaporate more uh, moisture out of a wall surface, and obviously that's how you dry things out. But it would be interesting to see uh, the dynamics of that. if That was that's a
2: great point. Yeah, that's
4: an excellent
1: comment.
2: Our restoration yeah. guys would like to see that too. Let me add one thought I had, and um, this year we're going to have Dr. Eva King is going to present, and um, she's with a, a group that does more allergen assessment and uh, analysis. They, they, they are the tops in, in the world, possibly, on this. I think it's in bio. And um, I had asked her, is it, is it possible maybe for us to do some some sampling of uh, allergens in, in dust, before and after three different scenarios. One would be well, of course, we'd have a control room. The second room would be we would do some sampling, um, dust sampling for allergens, before and after regular uh, regular vacuuming with the uh, the vacuums they use at the at the hotel. The second would be before and after HEPA vacuuming, and the third would be uh, before and after. Hot water extraction on the carpet, and and then get an idea of where, you know, what those different work practices do with respect to allergens. And I also think because Dr. Joe Spurgeon will be there, we could do something with uh, mold spores in carpet dust as well, before and after. And I guess my question is, uh, I don't think any of you would think we shouldn't do that, but should we add that? to the end of um our existing research so in other words after we're done the 24-hour period do we keep the containments up and do the different scenarios in the same room and look at it the next day or do we have that a completely separate type of research project kevin
4: boy that is a, a fascinating <laughs> uh question so i i uh, I think you leave it up and test afterwards.
2: Okay.
1: What do you guys think? Luke? Oh. Um, I guess the one thing that would concern me a little bit, and I would just hypothesize that one vacuuming or one day of vacuuming may not be enough to really see an overall change in those allergies in the carpeting. I have a feeling that would be something that would be better fleshed out if you were able to sample over the course of three days or five days or seven days or even longer, I don't know from one vacuuming whether or not we would actually see a significant reduction. We may, which may be surprising, but I would hypothesize that you would kind of have to do that process over time.
4: And it depends on the how you vacuum and the the carpeting itself. Exactly. Uh, I the carpet and a couple other factors, but it would be pretty interesting to see that trend.
2: Great point. Eric? Uh,
0: yeah, I, I'm, uh, I, my thoughts are a little along the line with with uh, with, uh, Luke's, uh regarding uh, what we might see, but then again, uh, we we are presuming. So let's uh, test it and see what actually happens.
2: Yeah, we can right. try it. You know, let's try it. Maybe this year we do 24 hours, and then the following year we do, you know, over three days or whatever, and then we compare the two. I mean, we'll be doing this for some time to come.
4: One. So. Well, Looked did some fascinating research a few years ago uh, on some HEPA study, vacuum study in schools, and he can talk a little bit about that, but uh, there was an amazing correlation with allergens for dust mite and the available moisture from just the readings he had done uh, for relative humidity. And we really saw a real dynamic change as that moisture content changed in the rooms.
2: You know that's a good, and part of the reason I asked that question was I wanted to get into that research that Luke was uh, doing. Uh, I think it was a few years back with respect to HEPA vacuuming. Um, but before we do, I want to make sure I pull Cliff in here. Cliff, any thoughts?
3: No, I'm just I'm just listening.
2: Okay. All right, I just wanted to, because I thought what um, Kevin mentioned with the water activity and, and adding a dehumidifier was something that I think a lot of the restoration guys would be interested in. All right, Luke, let's turn it over to you. Tell listeners a little bit about that HEPA vacuuming research. Oh, the other thing, uh, we've got to talk about this, but we can talk later on it. What allergens are we looking at? You mentioned dust Mike, Kevin, and I guess I'm going to have to talk to Dr. King and see what the you know how, what they will analyze for us. Whether we can only get one, or whether we can get several different types of allergens analyzed. I think that's an important point. If we can only get one, Kevin, what would you recommend?
4: Well, dust mite would definitely be uh, an interesting one. And I, <laughs> you're at a
2: hotel, so you
4: better be careful about cockroach allergen or <laughs> or mouse allergen. Okay, good but, point. But uh, certainly the ones that. Uh, that in people's homes that people care about are dust mite, uh, mold allergen. That, that's the primary reason people are concerned about mold exposure is people have significant allergies to mold, and then PET allergen. And uh, even from Luke's work, we were surprised, and Luke can speak to this, but surprised at, at the amount of PET allergen that we found, for example, in schools. And it would be of interest to see if you found pet allergen in these rooms because people carry it on their clothes and and suitcases etc and they may transport it into these hotel rooms and people don't even know it. Luke
1: tell us yeah. a little bit about uh, that. Um, Joe just to uh, just respond really quickly to your question about what InBio can do I'm almost 100% sure that they would be able to do that allergen sampling um, for those five allergens uh, the cockroach dust mite rodent um, cat and dog, and again, those molds as well. I'm 99% sure that they're able to do that.
2: Yeah, they can do it. I just was wondering if they would, if the cost was more, and you guys would know better than me, you do this type yeah, of thing it, all the it's time.
1: more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's more. Um,
2: and I mean, we
4: he is, might be willing to do it just as a uh, uh, contributor to the
2: the science of this thing.
1: And if in-bio is not, we could also propose that here at our allergy research lab well. Yeah, absolutely.
2: As well. So um, either that. way,
1: we can get that done.
2: Great. All right, okay, let, tell us so we bit into the vacuum
1: that. study just very, very quickly, several years ago, um, and these were not high-quality, high-dollar vacuums. We did go through consumer reports um, in determining what vacuums to order, but basically, we kind of used two vacuums from some a HUD-grant study where we were performing interventions in homes, and one of those interventions was placing a HEPA vac in that home, Um, and again, trying to determine if we saw reductions in those allergens over time. So what we tried to do in a school is we took a small elementary school. I broke it into three zones. Um, Each zone had basically nine rooms. Most of them were classrooms, and then we had one to two offices in each space. And what we did is at the beginning, I basically did that allergen sampling in each of those 27 rooms. So we did nine square foot sample in each of those 27 rooms. We gave the school facility two HEPAVAX. We did not tell anybody in the school what was going on other than the lead custodian. So he was aware of what was going on and that he had been given new HEPAVACs. Um, and basically we used HEPAVAX in two of those three test zones Over the course of a two-month time period, that third zone used their existing standard commercial upright um, vacuum, uh, linerless bagged vacuum, um, those ones that we kind of uh, equate to pig pen, you know, when you flip it on the switch and you see the dust cloud (laughs) kick out, Um, but that was used in that, that, um, that first or control area. And again, the goal was to see what kind of reductions we saw in allergens over time. Um, I also, at the same time, every two weeks, I would go back out and we would collect particulate data, um, some gas data, Uh, Some of those comfort indices, temperature, relative humidity, CO2, and I did that on the same day of the week and within 10 minutes of the same time in each of those rooms every two weeks. We also went back every Friday um, at the end of the week. I did not want to leave the vacuum allergens in the bag over the weekend because I didn't know about proliferation. Um, So what we did is every Friday afternoon, I would pick up the dust from those three vacuums and we analyzed that after two months, we, again, I went back into each of those 27 rooms and collected the the allergen vacuum sample again. We analyzed those for those five environmental allergens. at that point we removed the two hepavacs and we placed their two existing or old those those units that we removed from service initially and we placed those back in the room for the period of a month same two week sampling for gases and particles temperature relative humidity etc when the classrooms were occupied um Again, picking up vacuum bags every Friday afternoon, and then at the end of that month, again, I went back and collected that nine-square-foot sample in those 27 individual rooms again. And as Kevin pointed out, I, I want to before I forget, one of the other things we did, because we've surveyed staff and schools um, over the years, and one of the things that we found was their number one complaint related to custodial activities had to do with dust levels, and there's a number of reasons for that. Clutter, personal items, sometimes custodians are actually told not to dust personal items because maybe something's gotten broken in the past, etc. cetera. Um, but overall, dusting is a concern for staff. So we submitted uh, basically a survey to them, and we guised it under the the auspices of we're just confirming how happy you are with your custodial service. And I think we had seven simple questions, things like, is your trash empty daily? Um, does your room appear clean? How do you evaluate your dust levels, low, medium, and high, et cetera? Very, very simple questions, and they were asked um, every month over the course of those. So really it was four samples because you had the starting point and the end point and then the two months in between, but they had—we had we had four surveys go out, and we did see, in addition to that decrease in dust mite, and not decrease, I would say a mirroring of dust mite allergen Two humidity levels. You could almost track the dust mite allergen just with the humidity levels. You'd watch it go up and down. Hmm. But we also um, got survey data back and that survey data indicated that the staff did feel like their dust levels had gone down. And the nice thing about that is we all know that with a HEPA vacuum we're not re-entraining that dust that we're capturing from the carpeting into the occupied spaces of the room. So when we talk about schools that may be a way to minimize the amount of time custodial staff have to spend on dusting um if we are not re-entraining that air that that dust back into the airstream um through the process of vacuuming.
2: Interesting, Luke. Um do you two does Kevin or, or Eric, do you want to add anything or ask a question of Luke on that particular study?
0: Uh, no, I think I'm a little familiar with it uh uh prior, but uh i'm good on that kevin well the
4: only uh uh, challenge was uh getting uh them to use the vacuums regularly in in those designated areas and then unfortunately uh it it was a small pilot study so uh, it was very hard to achieve uh, an adequate sample size for the statistical power that people want for research articles so Uh. um that was one of the challenges with it, but the information that came from it was really fascinating for us.
1: And I think, and this is again just a hypothesis, but I would hypothesize that we may, maybe didn't see the reduction in some of those other allergens, particularly those pet allergens as Kevin referred to earlier. Because we have 25 to 30 kids loading up that room with pet allergen every day and maybe that vacuuming was not sufficient enough, whether it's duration, um, like Kevin said, maybe depending on the pile, the type of carpeting, how long they were able to vacuum for, etc. But that may explain why we didn't see some of those reductions in other allergens. Hmm.
2: All right. I've got two announcements. Well, one announcement, one congratulatory... uh Statement and then I want to finish with something for Kevin. One announcement is this um, I, I was asked by uh, Don Weeks to mention that there's a introduction to the recognition, evaluation, and control of Legionella in building water systems uh, guideline webinar coming up September 15th through the AIHA and IAQA members. IAQA is a sponsor of the show, uh, they get a discount for that webinar so you can check out learn more about it at the aiha website with the big news with respect to legionella and all the issues occurring and new york now having actually a i don't know if it's a law or an act or some kind of requirement that people test their water systems for legionella i know ashray now has a Uh, Another Legionella, uh, I don't know if it's a guidance or standard that came out. So there's a lot of interest in Legionella right now. That one's Tuesday, September 15th. You can learn more on the AIHA website. The other thing I wanted to mention was that four model programs in Alaska, Maine, Missouri, and Wisconsin were the winners of the inaugural HUD Housing and Urban Development Secretary's Award for Healthy Homes and Children's Mercy Hospital was one of the four. And um, I wanted to say congratulations to Kevin and Luke and your team at Children's Mercy for uh, being one of those four winners of that inaugural Secretary's Award for Healthy Homes. Um, And then finally, if you want to mention something about that, go right ahead, Kevin. But after you do, I want you to just briefly kind of pique people's interest about the e-health model that uh, you've been working on.
4: Well, first, uh, thank you very much for uh, mentioning that recognition. We were deeply honored to to receive that award, and, and we got that award because of uh, years of dedication of people like Luke and Erica Forrest from our staff and Ryan Allenbrand from our staff. They are the people who do the work every day that uh, makes uh, the colleagues and partners and clients that we work with uh, appreciate what we do and, and uh and recognizes so. Uh, thanks to them, and uh, tremendous honor for us. Uh, as far as uh, the model, um, uh, as you mentioned, uh, we do do research and uh, uh, have been involved in a variety of publications. And and I had commented to Joe at one point that our the, one of the more popular publications that we have developed or put out there uh, went out in 2012, and it was about a model for assessment and exposure reduction. And uh, it's just an approach that we recommended. We've seen it referred by many others. Uh, It's uh, in the uh, journal uh, Current Allergy and Asthma uh, Reports uh, from 2013, I think it was. And there is a, a basic algorithm in there that shows that Uh, Our ultimate goal would be to protect clients or occupants from experiencing harm, and we do that through exposure reduction, and exposure reduction is done by performing environmental assessments to understand uh, the different components of of exposure and to understand the pathways that, uh, that lead to exposure. And those three components we identified as facilitated factors, Uh, contaminant sources, and reservoirs. So the contaminant sources would be the either living or inanimate or chemical things in an environment, uh, and then the facilitated factors would be the things that are added to the environment, food, water, heat, shelter, whatever, that that mitigates the uh, proliferation of those either organisms or contaminant sources. For example, chemical activity increases with increased uh, humidity. And then there are reservoirs within buildings that serve as um, places where these contaminant sources uh, can build and thrive over time. And if you aren't working on all three, facilitated factors, contaminant sources and reservoirs simultaneously to do exposure reduction, that ultimately you, you'll you struggle to reduce exposure and people will continue to feel health effects. So our model was that you had to do a simultaneous exposure reduction process that included mitigation of facilitative factors, control of the sources and abatement of the reservoirs. And, And a lot of people like that structure that uh, we laid out. And and the theme of today's show has been about research into practice. And that model has served for us as a model for how we work with our patients and clients in systematically uh, assessing and characterizing exposures and hazards in their buildings and then offering them uh, recommendations and action plan for how to address each of those Uh, areas that impact exposure.
2: Well done, Kevin. I didn't think you could do that as quickly (laughs) as you did.
4: (laughs) I knew you wanted me to go fast, so I went quickly, but I appreciate you letting us mention that. Uh, uh, And and Luke can tell you, we have built a a training structure, and that's one of our missions is to train others in, in what we have found to be good practices for us as we try to translate research into practice. And
2: I want, to, I want to mention Dr. Portnoy, and, and I see he was on that paper. And uh, Christine, I give me that last name. Chacho. Chrissy Chacho. Uh, Chrissy Chacho. Okay. Hello. And what I'd like Dr. to do Portnoy is certainly Dr. Uh, has
4: been important in a, and uh, our champion here at the hospital, and we are always uh, uh, in gratitude to, towards him for supporting our work.
2: And if you can only help me get him back one more time, Kevin... Oh, he'd be happy to do. love to get him back on the show, and we can talk in a little more detail about the environmental assessment and exposure reduction, that new model. We can also uh, talk a lot more about some other interesting topics you all are working on at Children's Mercy. You're on the cutting edge there, and uh, we really appreciate you guys taking the time to join us today. I want to turn it over to the Z-Man. Do you have any final comments or questions, Cliff?
3: Nope, not at all.
2: Awesome. And Cliff is going to work on the blog for today's show. We will continue to work on writing up that research. We're going to add to it this year. I look forward to seeing all three of you in uh, about two and a half weeks from now at Seven Springs for the Healthy Building Summit. And uh, gentlemen, thanks again for joining us. This is Radio Joe You saying thank you to Luke Gard, Kevin Kennedy, and Eric Shapiro. For a great discussion on research to practice, come and visit us. We'll all be speaking at the uh, conference in uh, at the end of September here, September 30 to October 2nd, and we'll be uh, doing some live research as well, which really I think adds a lot to the event. So, gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Please come back next week and join us again for the next edition of IAQ Radio.
1: This has been another IAQ Radio production.
2: Okay, round two. Name something
0: that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club.
1: Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino.